John chapter 20. We continue our study of this gospel. This morning we'll look at verses 10 through 18. John 20, 10 through 18. <coughs> All over America this morning and churches everywhere, a great mistake will be made. And uh, as the Bible is opened and taught, Primarily, it will show up as a deficiency in the way that children are taught in Sunday schools, classes, but it will also affect countless adults. Indeed, it's repeated day after day in many, many Christian homes, some of the best Christian homes. Mistake I'm in trouble or, uh, or a deficiency I'm talking about is the common practice of studying the Bible and reading the Bible, teaching the Bible as if it were a book of Bible stories. You may say, well, that's what it is. Well, no, not exactly. The Bible is certainly filled with wonderful stories, fascinating stories, sad and tragic stories sometimes, stories involving great men and women of faith. But the subject, the central figure in all of those stories is not the people who are often given top billing in the Bible stories, in our classes and in our family uh, devotional times. For example, the account of Noah and the flood is not about Noah. And in the story of Moses leading the people out of Egypt, the great leader in that story is not Moses. And in the battle between David and Goliath, the hero is not David. No, in every case, God is the subject of the story. He is the one who is disclosing himself through these historical events. He is the one whom we and our children should come away from this study, these studies about knowing better, not David or Noah or uh, Moses. That's what I mean by saying that reducing the Scripture down to Bible stories is a serious problem in the church. Well, I mention that because we have a wonderful Bible story to read this morning. I just don't want us to settle for too little as we study it. Let me read it. I'm going to pick up and read the first three verses of uh, John 20 because it talks about Mary Magdalene and kind of sets the whole thing in the context. And then I'll pick up again in verse 10 down to uh, verse 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. And then we talk about the whole thing we read that last week. Picking up now down to verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their home. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they ask her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they put him. At this moment, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Tell Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, 
Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Touching story. Filled with emotion. But let me go beyond the obvious, if I might. Not to be clever, but to try to suggest what God is saying to us about himself here that perhaps are things that we might not think of on our first reading, but only after we've meditated on this a bit. Three, three lessons that I'd like to share with you, three truths, briefly. The first is this. God chooses the most unexpected people. God chooses the most unexpected people. It's one of the curious things about the Bible. God choosing unlikely people to call his own. Sometimes it's downright baffling. Why, for example, would God choose the conniving mama's boy, Jacob, rather than the ruddy, winsome outdoorsman, Esau? Baffling. Doesn't make sense. But he did. God chooses the most unexpected people. And that's going on right here in John 20 as well. Oh, make no mistake, there's a choice that's been made here. The Lord has made a choice. Jesus has risen from the dead, but no one has seen him. And we notice throughout all the gospel accounts that during these 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, people didn't just happen on to Jesus having lunch down in the marketplace. No, Jesus set the times and the places in which he showed himself to people whom he selected. So who's going to be first? Who will have this special privilege of being the very first person to see the risen Jesus? Well, it must be Peter. I mean, Peter's the chief of the apostles. On this rock I will build my church, Jesus said. said. Or perhaps John, at least. The disciple Jesus loves, the one who appears to have been Jesus' best friend. Unless, of course, it's Mary, Jesus' mother, we would certainly understand if he honored her in such a way. No. None of the above. For God often chooses the most unexpected people. Instead of any of those, Jesus first appears... To Mary Magdalene. Now Mary Magdalene has been given a bum rap, perhaps, by the church. For since the early centuries, it's been commonly assumed that Mary had been a prostitute. There's actually no hard evidence for that anywhere in the scripture. But what Mary had been, which is certain, is Mary had been possessed by seven demons. That makes her a pretty wretched woman. We tend to use the word demon in a figurative way, not literal control by the evil one, but we talk about someone having his or her demons 
maybe talking about a drinking problem or an anger uh, 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 that gets out of control, a temper that gets out of control. So imagine, even with our figures of speech, imagine a woman who has seven such vices. Well, let's think of seven. Drinking, drugging, dealing, passing bad checks, fits of rage, compulsive lying, petty theft. Those would kind of go together, wouldn't they? That's not a pretty woman. And of course, Mary's seven demons were not figures of speech. They were satanic realities as she was controlled by the evil one. So whether selling her body, which often would go with such vices, whether that was part of her problem or not, at the very least, Mary was not a candidate for God's favor. No matter how impressively she may have been healed. Not to mention that Mary Magdalene was a woman. Now we've been through this recently. This is an area in which we have some differences of opinion. But folks, think about this. Bruce Mill in his excellent little book on the Gospel of John points out that, I quote, in Jesus' society women were not even thought fit to be witnesses in court. But here Jesus chooses a woman. Mary Magdalene, a woman with a wicked history, with a reputation as the first disciple to whom he would show himself alive again. And then he tells her to go and tell the 11 men, the apostles, his hand-picked witnesses. She is to be the witness who informs the witnesses. Well, John Calvin sees the irony of it. He thinks the Lord is punishing the eleven. Calvin writes, Christ sends his disciples to school to the women. The women were commanded to announce to the apostles what they, that is the apostles, exercising the office committed to them afterwards, proclaimed to the whole world. But where did they hear it? From Mary. You see, before you let that verse, let women keep silent in the church, eat up everything else the Bible says on the subject, remember Mary Magdalene, chosen by Jesus to be the first witness, commissioned to inform the apostles, the official witnesses of the resurrection. Oh, but we should be surprised at that because, you see, God often chooses the most unexpected people. You know, no matter how much we talk about grace, we tend to forget that pretty quick. Instead, we just assume that God prefers the good-looking, popular, well-to-do, those of our own ethnic background and political persuasion. Well, God must like them best. But Jesus shows God's not like us. He said it before, blessed are the, are the poor, <clears throat> blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, the, are persecuted. Later the apostle Paul said it in another way, look at yourselves, he says, not many wise, not many influential, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong, the lowly and despised, 
the things that are nothing to nullify the things that are. I call you this morning to Jesus who doesn't play favorites like the world does. I call you to change your attitude and have the mind of Christ who loves and chooses the most unexpected kind of people. Then there's a second truth we'll see about the Lord as we meditate on this text, and that's this, that it's the call of Jesus that awakens our faith. It's the call of Jesus that awakens our faith. Last week, we went through quite an exercise in logic as we thought through some of the various explanations that people have proposed to explain away the open tomb. You may recall that I shared with you some of John Stott's uh, summary of those views and his assessment of why none of them will hold water. I hope that was helpful to see that believing what God says does not involve throwing away your brains. Well, but today I want you to understand that there's more to this than airtight logic. It is Jesus' call that awakens our hearts, awakens our faith. You see, in this account before us in John 20, Mary Magdalene had lots of evidence. Think about what she had before her. She knows the tomb is empty, the thing we talked about at such length last week. She was the one who discovered it. She sees the deserted grave clothes, that powerful piece of evidence that caused John to believe when he saw it. Well, she had seen it too. In fact, in addition to those things, she had a conversation with a couple of angels in this tomb. According to Matthew's account, they had earlier explained to her and to some other women who were with her when she initially came to the tomb, they had all explained the situation with some detail. Here's what they said. Do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he lay. That's a pretty good report from the angels. Mary knows that. And, and now we, we, we have the angels speaking to Mary again as she stoops and looks in the tomb and sees the angels now inside. And they ask her directly, perhaps prodding her a bit, Woman, why are you crying? Mary has lots of evidence. The open tomb, the deserted grave clothes, the word of the angel, the explanation, and now a little gentle rebuke about, why don't you believe these things? And yet all that evidence left her where? Sobbing hysterically. Convinced someone had stolen the body of Jesus. Determined, just tell me, I'll fix it, she says. I'll get it. Something she could probably not have even done. Isn't that where we are too? We would all like to think that we are careful, calculating decision makers who given enough evidence will figure things out and make the right decision. But God says, no, it's not so. Specifically, God says, no, we're blinded by the truth blinded to the truth, and we will never end up doing what's right on our own. For you see, sin has messed us up. 
It's messed up our thinking. We don't even think straight. It's messed up our heart. We love the wrong things. It's messed up our decision making. We can't weigh things right for we, we have this sinful preoccupation that has its thumb on the scales all the time. Apostle Paul explained it like this, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them for they're spiritually discerned. You see, just having the facts is not enough. We need what Mary needed. The personal call of Christ that awakened her heart. In verse 16, we have the most wonderful part of the story. As Jesus calls her with one word, Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out, Rabboni, my teacher, my Lord. Her heart was wakened, not by the evidence, but by this personal, powerful call of Christ. And then she saw him for who he is, and she believed, and she embraced him. She confessed her allegiance. John Calvin said, thus in Mary we have an image of our own calling. For the only entrance to the true knowledge of Christ is when he first knows us and then intimately invites us to himself, not by the ordinary voice that sounds in everyone's ears indiscriminately, but by the voice with which he especially calls his own. Indeed, every single book that I read and there are many on this passage, points out that here when Jesus speaks Mary's name and it changes her heart, here we have an example of what Jesus promised in John chapter 10 when he says, the miracles that I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. We tend to think so highly of our spiritual quest. We think we sought the Lord with such integrity, but are we not like Mary Magdalene? You see, we don't see Mary believing in Jesus Believing he's risen from the dead and therefore he shows himself to her. Oh no, that's not how it worked. Instead we see that Jesus first calls her name. Calls her to himself and then she believes that he's risen from the dead. It's the call of Christ that awakens our faith. Not vice versa. Oh, surely the scripture tells us to seek the Lord while he may be found, to turn from our wicked ways and seek his face. 
But if indeed you have ever found him, you must admit that it was not your logic or your search or your zeal that brought you to the Savior. It was his life-changing call that awakened your heart to even care. A wonderful hymn from a century ago said it so well. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. Dear folks, this is why we don't resist the Lord. Because we're not in the driver's seat. He is. He doesn't lay himself out there in a smorgasbord for us to kind of pick and choose if we like him or not. He calls. And those who are his sheep hear his voice and respond and come and follow. And then our whole hearts are filled with praise and gratitude for his grace. For it's Jesus' call that awakens our heart. Nothing else. Well, finally, a third truth that we must not miss that tells us about the Lord in this passage. And that's this. That Jesus' resurrection changes everything. Jesus' resurrection changes everything. When Mary realizes that Jesus is alive, she understandably wants to hold him tight. Here at the end of the text, Jesus seems to have quite a different agenda. Let me read right at the end again here, verse 17. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, verse 17 is a very difficult verse. A lot has been said about it. There's a lot of disagreement as to exactly how to take it. But even without resolving all of those problems, without even going into all of those things, the point of the passage is clearly this, that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. You see, Mary undoubtedly thought that now things were going to be like they used to be again. It was when Lazarus was raised. Well, what happened? Well, he was dead, and then they raised him, and it was a great time of celebration because then life went back to normal. And so Mary, I'm sure, assumed that uh, life was going to get back to normal now, that the old group of disciples, not just the 12, but all the others too, and the group of women that helped support Jesus, well, we could all get together, we could travel again with Jesus, and undoubtedly more people will be healed, and more demons will be cast out, and more people will cease to be cynics and will begin to believe that Jesus is the one who's going to be the Messiah. Now maybe, maybe there's hope after all that Jesus will one day be accepted by his people and become the Messiah and ascend to the throne and rule in Israel like, like they had hoped. And I'm sure that the dreams and the hopes that a crucifixion and three days of mourning had dampened or were suddenly revived in Mary's heart when she saw the Lord. But Jesus immediately begins to speak as if things are not going to be that way again. No, he says, don't hold on to me. I've got another agenda. The ascension to my Father is now what's happening. Go tell the disciples, my brothers. He, tell, he says, tell the disciples I am Literally, it says ascending, not just returning. Ascending to my Father. Ascending 
That's kingdom language. That's, that's when you take the throne, you ascend to the throne. Ascending to my Father, he says. Not just enthroned by the acclaim or the election of the people of Israel, but enthroned at the right hand of God Almighty. Ascended to the Father. Well, you see, the kingdom is not waiting for the Jews to approve it or accept it. Jesus won it. It's a done deal because his resurrection changes everything. Oh, and the implication for the disciples is awesome. Go tell my brothers, Jesus says. Now, now John, up to this point, has never used that language for anything other than Jesus' biological half-brothers who did not believe up to this point. But now, Jesus is calling his disciples, my brothers. Indeed, as we saw in the book of Hebrews, uh, this fact is reiterated. Jesus suffered to bring many sons to glory, and he's not ashamed to call them brethren, we read. And indeed, his disciples can call his father, their father. I'm, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. There's a, there's, a, there's a commonality, Jesus says, between my status and your status. Though, yes, there's a distinction, but it's now your father and you are now my brothers. Indeed, we're invited to use Jesus' own intimate terminology, Abba, Daddy, Papa. You see, because Jesus is raised from the dead, everything is new. The kingdom has become a reality, not because of an election, but because of Jesus' resurrection. Our reconciliation with God has been accomplished, not because somehow we managed to appease God and get back on his right side, but because Jesus paid it all and joined us with his Father. And our adoption into God's family is now reality as many as receive Jesus, he gives the authority to be called the sons of God. So Mary, go tell. Go tell, my brothers. And tell she did. And tell the apostles did. And tell the whole church did. And go tell Christians continue to do. And I announce it to you this morning. The war is over. The election didn't ever happen. Jesus rose from the dead and is exalted at the right hand of the Father. The kingdom is his. He has ascended to the throne. He alone can save us from this wicked and adulterous generation. So trust him and love him and follow him and serve him with all your heart because he is making us the children of God. Indeed, if anyone is in Christ, he too is a brand new creation. By his resurrection, Jesus changed everything. Oh, I know we don't see everything changed yet. But we know that Jesus is raised. The rest is just a matter of time. Therefore, we have to keep our heads and remember which kingdom we're part of, not the kingdom of this world but the kingdom of Christ, and we eagerly, expectantly, faithfully labor, awaiting his glorious return. For by his resurrection, Jesus has done nothing less than inaugurate the beginning 
of the eternal age to come. His resurrection changed everything. Oh, you see, this is not primarily an emotional-laden story about Mary Magdalene, though it is that. This is a story about God. This is a story about His grace, how He chooses the most unexpected, unlikely people to call His own. This is a story about His calling, how he calls us personally. It's not, it's not the result of all of our digging and learning and reasoning. No, he personally calls us to himself and awakens us to follow him. And it's about his victory, how his resurrection has changed everything and ushered in the beginnings of the eternal glory. This text is about Jesus. Amen. Father, thank you so much for these truths. I pray that as we think about these things deeply, that we would understand more than just the nice story that we read. That we would understand what you are doing. And our hearts would be moved to praise and allegiance and love and gratitude. We ask in the name of our Savior. Amen.